It's persecution today, so we better pray. Father, we come before you, conscious of our frailties and sinfulness and our confusions and our doubts. We come before you, conscious of how much we need you. We pray that this morning our confidence in you will be deepened and our willingness to serve you in whatever way you call us grown for your glory's sake. Amen. I want to quote to you some words spoken in 1953 and uh, I wonder if you can work out who said them. If you're not allowed to have your meetings publicly then you must hold uh, your meetings over your machines in the factories, on the trams, on the buses as you travel home. You must have your meetings in your villages and shanty towns. You must make every home, every shack and structure where our people live a branch of the movement, and you must never surrender. Spoken in 1953, who said those words? Does anyone know? Any ideas? It was Nelson Mandela. He spoke them at a meeting of the Illegal Transvaal Congress in September 1953 as part of his fight against the horrors and injustices of apartheid. And of course, Mandela himself lived out his mission so that his cell on Robben Island, where he was in prison for 27 years, itself became a branch of the movement. What struck me about it, and uh, a few years ago I read the Anthony Sampson biography of Mandela, which I think is a fascinating book. I think it's uh, obviously, inevitably, a more rounded uh, approach than Mandela's autobiography, A Long Walk to Freedom, although that is fascinating. But Sampson sort of paints the picture warts and all and gives a, a, a profound understanding of Mandela, his work and, and life. But what struck me about him and many others was uh, the commitment, the determination, and above all, the sacrifice that he and countless others made for this cause. And, of course, it was a just cause. There might have been debates about how to fight for the cause, but the cause itself was just. But what of the gospel cause? Would we be prepared to make the same commitments, the same sacrifices? Because not only do we believe in the justice of our cause but also the goodness of our news. We believe that being part of God's community is actually a great thing, a thrilling thing, the best thing. What sacrifices, what commitments are we prepared to make? Do we actually honestly believe that this news is good? Is it good? It will not have come as uh, any surprise for the first believers because, of course, their Lord had warned uh, about what would happen. In fact, it's one of those promises, and I, I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, you know how you can go into sort of Christian bookshops and sort of trinket shops where you can buy sort of pencil sharpeners with Jesus loves you on it and things, and you get these nice little lovely books with uh, the promises of Jesus in. And, you know, they usually have a nice sort of photo of, I don't know, a landscape or a sheep. 
And, um, but this is one of Jesus' promises that I pretty much guarantee you will not find in one of those books. This is what Jesus said to the disciples in John. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. That's a promise. It's a promise Jesus makes. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. It's going to happen. It's a promise. But look what he says. Take heart. I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. And of course, not only had Jesus died a martyr's death, but so had his forerunner, John the Baptist. Well, in the book of Acts, persecution has been hotting up. And uh, we can see um, that uh, basically, uh, as time has gone on, uh, this has grown. Now, did I put this? Where's my black and white one? Yeah, there we are. You'll see uh, on page seven of the black and white one that basically... Uh, as the chapters have gone on in Acts, as things have grown, so too has the persecution. I mean, to begin, the, to begin with, it was just sort of gentle, perhaps sort of barbed mockery. Oh, they're drunk. They've had too much wine. That's why they're making these sort of weird sounds and doing odd things. But uh, pretty quickly, we find that uh, authorities get wind of this and they start taking action. They start arresting and imprisoning to begin with, they just release them after an informal hearing, but then later, of course, they arrest them proper. And in chapter 5, the apostles are threatened with death and saying, look, shut up, stop talking about this stuff. Um, but, um, of course, they couldn't. And then we come to chapter 6 and 7, and we find Stephen is seized and put on trial and then stoned to death. It's not taken very long. For things to get bloody. Stephen, of course, as we saw yesterday, was one of the deacons who was uh, chosen to help at the tables and to make sure that the food was distributed. But it turns out that he was actually rather a good preacher as well. So what do we know about him? Well, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, well, we assume that he is Greek. Well, he's got a Greek name. And the Grecian Jews are happy for him to serve them. Interestingly, the Hebraic Jews are also happy for Stephen and the six others to take this job. We find in verse 5 of chapter 6 that he's full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the reasons why he's chosen to be a deacon. He's a godly man. He's also full of God's grace and power, and he can perform extraordinary signs and wonders. We see that in 6.8. The great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. And so, you know, God was clearly using him. And what is interesting is that presumably because he was Greek, we find that uh, he was able to argue on the same terms as other diaspora Jews, in other words, those from the Greek-speaking world. So look at verses uh, 9 and 10. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Okay, so this is a synagogue in Jerusalem. Um, it was named the Synagogue of the Freedmen because presumably it had been started by a Jewish person who had once been a slave but was a freedman. 
Um, slavery in the ancient world was a much more fluid thing than we might uh, assume it uh, was if we compare it to sort of the American Deep South or whatever it is. But uh, so people earn their freedom uh, fairly regularly. And so this synagogue in Jerusalem was probably started by someone who was grateful to God for his freedom, but from the diaspora, from the dispersion of Jews around the Roman world. And we learn in verse uh, 9 that they, they were from Cyrene and Alexandria, uh, which was North Africa, and Cilicia and Asia, which are in modern Turkey. And basically there were believers, uh, were Jewish uh, believers who had come from all over the sort of Mediterranean rim, if you like, and met in Jerusalem uh, at, the at this synagogue of freed freedmen. Now, why is Cilicia significant? Well, it's because one of the main cities of Cilicia was a little town called Tarsus, which is probably highly probable that another notable member of this synagogue was a man called Saul. But what was it that made Stephen so bold? Well, clearly his relationship with Jesus was profound. He'd been with Jesus for years, perhaps. And uh, he knew him and he trusted him. And so we see in chapter 6, verse 15, his face was like the face of an angel, sort of reflected glory, which reminds us of Moses up the mountain, doesn't it? His glory just reflected off him. And at the end of the chapter, as we'll see, uh, as, and we heard this read earlier, that um, you know, he looked up and saw Jesus on his throne. Well, of course, that's where Jesus is now, after the ascension. On his throne, ascended, seated, ruling the Lord. He was confident. He knew his Lord. It reminded me of a story from about 100 years after Stephen's death, 100 years during which much Christian blood had been spilled. A man called Polycarp was the second bishop of Smyrna, uh, which is uh, now on the Turkish coast, Izmir. And, of course, Polycarp's world was very similar to that of Stephen. The Roman Empire still holds sway in the 2nd century. And it is still resolutely pagan. Constantine has not apparently been converted yet. So Polycarp ends up being martyred for his faith. Now this is a print taken from an extraordinary book of prints I came across, uh, which came out uh, during the Reformation era, um, uh, compiled by a group of Mennonites who, of course, were being persecuted by everybody in the Reformation era, persecuted by the mainline reformers as well as the Catholics. Uh, Menno Simons was their leader. And so martyrdom was a very real risk for these guys, and in fact, many people were martyred. And so there's this extraordinary book of prints of all the martyrs of the Bible and all those in church history since. Um, it's all rather gruesome. So here's the one of uh, Polycarp. And um, the story about Polycarp is extraordinary. In AD 55, he was dragged before the authorities in the province, the Roman province of Asia, and required to name Caesar as his lord. And he was uh, required to burn the requisite pinch of incense to the god Caesar. And Polycarp resolutely refused. 
The Roman consul assured him that he had wild beasts available and would feed Polycarp to the beasts if he refused. Send for them, Polycarp replied. The consul then threatened, if you despise the wild beasts, I'll send you to the fire. Swear and I will release you. Curse the Christ. This stirred Polycarp's stellar response. Eighty-six years have I served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme my king who has saved me? He knew his Lord. He knew what he was like, and he knew that he was good. The crucial thing for Polycarp was his relationship with Jesus. It wasn't a creed that mattered, although doctrine is important. It wasn't a philosophy that drove him. It was a person that he knew and trusted. And no doubt, as he looked down from heaven on Polycarp, Stephen would have been chiming with a hundred alleluias. That's right. He has done me no wrong. How can I curse and blaspheme my king who has saved me? Now, I don't know about how you feel about the way things are going in our country. Things are getting tougher. There's no doubt about it. And I am in fear and trembling sometimes because, of course, preachers sometimes are the first people who get rounded up. And at these times, I've got to remember the thing, the first thing that goes out of my mind. I've got to remember what Jesus is like. Has he changed? Has his character changed? Has his trustworthiness changed? Well, Stephen didn't think so. Polycarp didn't think so. So within a few verses of Luke's narrative in the book of Acts, we find one of the deacons at table under the spotlight, but in the most surprising way. Peter had been imprisoned and spoken to the Sanhedrin before, but Stephen is the one who pushes them over the edge. Now, it's an odd curiosity, isn't it? Why do we get the focus so much on Stephen? After all... When the major, the more senior apostle, Stephen wasn't an apostle, he was a deacon, but when the more influential and important apostle, James, dies in Acts 12, he warrants only one line. Luke doesn't tell us anything about what happened there. He just, just told he got beheaded. What was it about Stephen's speech that really got their goat? Why was it so provocative? Why focus on Stephen? Well, I think we can answer both those questions when we look through the speech. And um, I, I warn you, this is, this, this is going to be hard going because it's a complex speech. I just plead with you to hang with me, uh, and then when we get uh, through the speech, hopefully the pieces of the jigsaw will slot into place and you'll see why it's so significant. But I have to confess that I'd always been a bit confused by this speech, I'd never really understood what it was about. It is uh, complex. I sort of knew that it was a Bible overview, and it is of sorts, but that never explained why Stephen is so selective and why he makes the points he makes and why he stops in the history of Israel where he stops. 
Um, I found Chris Green's introduction to the book of Acts uh, really helpful in unpacking this speech. Uh, unfortunately, we had a bit of a problem with the distributors for our bookstall. About half the books we asked for didn't come, and then we didn't get all the copies that we asked for of the ones we did get. So unfortunately, there are only three copies of Chris Green's book, but I really do recommend it. Uh, but the key thing is to understand what was Stephen up against? What was he accused of? And then we can understand why he said what he said. Because basically, this is not just a straight sermon to people, you know, in a vacuum, as it were. This is a defense statement, a response to various specific charges made against him. And these charges revolve around blasphemy against God. It's interesting, isn't it? This was a very common charge against Jesus, that he was blaspheming. And to blaspheme is basically to, to take the holy things of God and misuse them whether it's the name of God or whether it's um, uh, the things of God, uh, whatever it might be, or even uh, to take on the name of God onto yourself. That is the ultimate blasphemy. And, of course, that's why Jesus, uh, people tried to stone him. But what was Stephen accused of? Well, there are two main things that Stephen was accused of. In chapter 6, verses 11 to 14, Two main things, the Torah and the temple. So have a look at verse um, 11 of chapter 6. They secretly persuaded some men to say, so it was a stitch up, just like Jesus' trial. We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. Well, why Moses? Well, look, go on. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, the temple, and against the law, the Torah. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Okay, two things he's accused of under this umbrella of blasphemy. Mishandling and speaking against the law, the Torah, which was... Uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and speaking against this place, the temple. And it's interesting, isn't it? They use the charge that they used against Jesus. I'll destroy this place, uh, uh, destroy the temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. What's fascinating is that these two big accusations against uh, the church by uh, the Jewish contingent seems to continue all the way through. And Stephen's not the only one in the book of Acts accused of these two things. And what is fascinating is that by the time you get to Paul and his defense of his ministry, so you find that towards the end of Acts, do you remember he is on trial in a number of different places and he's giving a defense of his own ministry? And uh, when he's up against uh, Governor Festus and King Herod Agrippa II, Paul's defending himself against exactly the same charges. Don't bother looking it up. Let me just read to you from Acts 25, verse 8. He defends himself against the same charges plus one. Just listen to this. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Okay, so basically what you've got there when he's up in front of Festus and Agrippa, the Roman authorities in Festus and Agrippa, the Jewish, well, so-called king. 
And Paul is defending himself against charges that he's blaspheming against the law and the temple from the Jewish side and against Caesar from the Gentile, the Roman side. It's fascinating that these accusations seem to stymie the church all the way through. People accuse them of it. So that is one reason of a number, why we get all this information now in Stephen's defense. We're meant to assume that this defense formed part of the defense of the early church in the years to come as they were accused of various things by the Jews. Do you see? It's fascinating though, isn't it? A classic attack on the gospel is that it is illegal or that it runs counter to the culture. Isn't that very often how opposition comes down the centuries? That it's illegal or it's not the way we do things here. You know, it's no longer in tune. Have you heard this sort of thing? In tune with the sort of modern British culture of tolerance and fairness and pluralism. It's not how we do things in Britain. And in fact, it's becoming increasingly the case that the sorts of things we might want to say are becoming illegal. Isn't that right? It's very unfair. But it's a reality. And it was unfair for Stephen and Peter and Paul and all the others, as Stephen's speech will go on to explain. I think we just need to make a little digression here because there are some things that Luke is doing in terms of the relationship between um, uh, the early believers and um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the um, original Judaism. For some reason, this didn't come through on the sheet. I'm sorry about that. Oh, well, you'll just have to take my word for it. It was planned. Um, but what was the relationship with Judaism and Jesus and his followers? Well, the important thing is in the beginning, it's quite clear, and Luke is adamant that this is the case, and remember, he's a Gentile writing, that it is built on Jewish foundations. And the first believers saw absolutely no contradiction in hanging around the religious rituals and festivals that they'd grown up with. They were Jewish believers in a Jewish Messiah. They saw no contradiction at all. This was not yet a global movement. They didn't fully necessarily understand the implications of it. And yet Luke is at pains to show their Jewish reverence. So from the start, they meet every day where? In the temple. Well, of course. We're better. Uh, they sing psalms. They study the scriptures. This is a Jewish thing. Uh, there's a constant validation from the Old Testament. Have you noticed that? Again and again, every single point that the speeches make backed up from the Old Testament. They understood the new Pentecost in Old Testament terms. We've thought about that. They were praying and preaching. The two, remember, the two priorities of the apostles, praying and preaching. They did that in the temple courts. Well, of course they did. They wanted to proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah. And they modeled their ministry on Jesus which meant that they didn't pull any punches on those around them because, of course, Jesus had rather a lot of shocking things to say to religious types. But the point is they saw no contradiction with their Jewish heritage. And nor should we. 
They only saw fulfillment and culmination. And the important thing is they leave and are driven out by their persecutors. They didn't necessarily want to. They're driven out. They're separated from the temple and synagogue by the rulers of those places, not by their design. And you can see this in Paul's ministry, can't you? As he goes around, every sound, every city he visits, the first place he goes without fail is the synagogue. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. That was the priority, because this was their heritage. But Paul didn't stick with the Jews, and this leads to the other issue, which is beginning to be flagged up, although in Acts we're not there quite yet. But there is a breaking down of Jewish boundary markers, the things that mark people out as Jewish. Because things are going to get complicated if you start bringing non-Jews into the mix, and we'll see that tomorrow. How will they relate to these old traditions? I mean, basically, Peter and the gang, they, they didn't suddenly start eating pork on Pentecost. What about food then? What about the temple? What about sacrifices? What about circumcision? All these things that were boundary markers that identified people as Jewish in the Old Covenant, what would happen for Gentiles if they came in? If Jesus is their Messiah, what do they have to do to show that they belong to him? Do you see that this was a fundamental question for the early church? It was probably the big question. And it's the big question in Acts. Because you see, Acts, if I'm right in thinking that it is about God's gospel going global, then how you're going to deal with these boundary markers is the big question. Do you see? Otherwise, it'll just remain a Jewish sect with a few people who join in. And I think that once we see that picture, we begin to understand why Stephen's speech is so important. Because actually what you get in Stephen's speech is the beginnings of an explanation of why God's purposes go beyond just the nation of Israel. So let's see what Stephen does. And the extraordinary thing is, and you know, this shows how sort of bullish he is in a way, the Jewish leaders make a charge against him, and his response, his defense is to turn the tables and make a charge against them, which is fairly unwise if you don't know what you're doing. I mean, talk about being provocative. He's really in your face. He doesn't put any punches. He goes out of his way to prove why they are in the wrong, not him. Now, that is, you know, if you find yourself in a court of law, that is not a good tactic, you know, to stand from the dock and say, look, I'm innocent. You, your honor, you're the one with the problem. That's not a good way to go about things. Just a handy tip. Now, Stephen knew what he was talking about, and he was clearly a gifted thinker and communicator. We just see in chapter 6, verse 10, that, you know, the people in the synagogue of the freedmen, they couldn't stand up to him because of his wisdom or because of the spirit by whom he spoke. So he was clearly good at arguing and making his case, and that's what we see in this speech. And basically, we get a potted overview of Genesis 12 to Exodus 18. It's not the whole of the Old Testament story, but uh, it's basically focused on these chapters. It seems a bit rambly, but actually these tables uh, on the sheet I got from Chris Green's book. I couldn't uh, do any better at all. I think he does a great job. And basically what Chris Green shows is that what Stephen is doing is combining, like Luke does throughout, theology and geography. 
This is about theology and geography. And the crucial question is, as Stephen goes through Old Testament history, is to ask, what was God doing? And more significantly, where was he doing it? So let's work through it. He starts with Abraham. And that's uh, verses uh, 2 to 8. Where did, Abraham, uh, where did God appear to Abraham? Well, in Mesopotamia, modern Iraq, basically where uh, he was living. Where did Abraham settle in Haran? And then which part of the promised land did Abraham own? Well, none of it. It was all a promise. He got there and there was nothing there, perhaps a few sheep and goats and some other people. But basically, he had very little, if anything, to show for it. This land that he was going to live in was a promise, a far-off promise. Look at verse 15, uh, verse 5. God gave him, that is Abraham, no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. If you've been at All Souls in the evenings and uh, recent weeks, we've been looking at the life of Abraham and uh, how a constant battle for him was to trust God in the face of extraordinary hurdles and problems. And basically, Abraham's told he's going to have descendants, and at this stage, he's got none. I mean, there's always a sort of old joke I quite like, so I'll tell it anyway. Um, but, you know, Abraham... Uh, was, uh, you know, when he and Sarah were doing the rounds, you know, sort of going to the next oasis and, you know, there'd be sort of cocktail parties in the evenings with the other nomads. And um, they'd sort of come round and, um, oh, hi, how do you do? What's your name? Oh, father of many nations. Okay, all right. Oh, so how many children have you got? None. Huh? That's not quite right. No children? You're called father of many nations? Hang on a minute. It's absurd. But God will raise up a family, and he will give him a land. And then you find uh, he's told about the Egyptian slavery and the exodus, but he himself had little to show for things except for God's promises and one son. And then you have Joseph. Now, it's fascinating. There's a word that gets mentioned six times, Egypt. Just in these few verses, he's ramming home the point that this is all in Egypt. And verse 9, the crucial point is, God was with him. And you know the story well. God sovereignly protects this fragile promised family. By Joseph's generation, Abraham's family is 70 strong, but that hardly constitutes a nation, and they're not living in the right place. They're living in Egypt. But of course, to get to them that point, they had to be protected during a famine. And Egypt was where the food was. And so God raises up. Joseph as prime minister. So, where was God with Joseph? God was with Joseph in Egypt. Where did Jacob and uh, Joseph's father die? In Egypt. Where did the rest of the family go? To Egypt. You getting the point? It's not in the land, it's in Egypt. Okay? Where are we all the time? And that strange business about the burials is about trusting God's promise to give them a land because they're buried, they died outside the land. And they go through quite a sort of rigmarole to sort out where they're going to get buried. 
Now, after Joseph, of course, we come to the end of Genesis, and several centuries pass before Exodus begins. And remember, the Pharaoh had forgotten about Joseph, and there were all these sort of Hebrews who were knocking around, and they had been enslaved. And Moses is born. If you read the first few chapters of Exodus, it's full of irony and satire, biting satire. You know, Pharaoh tries to wipe out this lot of Hebrews by killing the firstborn son, uh, all the firstborn sons, and says, cast them into the river. So what does God do? Well, he casts Moses into the river in a basket, and Pharaoh ends up adopting him in his own, into his own family. And God raises up Moses to lead the people. So where did he grow up? Egypt. Where did Moses flee to? To Midian. Where did God appear to Moses? Mount Sinai. Where did God send Moses? Back to Egypt. Where did God call the people to go to? Back to Sinai, to the giving of the law. All right? Now, Stephen is summing up this whole story, bringing out the key points that basically God is at work outside the land. And the key of the, is the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel, which is why God tells Moses he will act and tells him why he sends Moses back to Egypt. Look at verse 34. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. You're beginning to get the idea. The geography matters. Now the people didn't like that very much. Hint, hint. God's prophets don't usually find a positive reaction, as we'll see. But let's sum up the geographical story so far. What about the law? Well, it was given in the desert, okay, in Sinai. But the ecclesia, the assembly at Sinai, that's where it was given, okay? Is everyone with me? What about the tabernacle? Well, the tabernacle was a tent that was portable, and it went wherever the people went, outside the land. It wouldn't become the temple for generations. Not until Solomon. That was years later. It was for those who were wandering pilgrims. We sang, Guide me, O thou great Redeemer. That's what it's about, wandering through this barren land. It's about the exodus, uh, the, 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 the first generation of Israel's wanderings. And they took the tabernacle with them. Now, what happened when these, uh, God de did these things for Israel? Well, this is where Stephen really turns up the heat. He is nothing if not direct. What happened with the law when it was first given? Well, Israel's original response, verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him. They had the law, but they disobeyed. What was Israel's contemporary response? In other words, at Stephen's time, look at verse 53. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Okay, do you see the point? They were given the law, they disobeyed it. You're given the law, you disobey it. What's the charge against Stephen? Well, he speaks against the law, the Torah. What's Stephen's defense, or rather his charge against Israel? Well, you don't keep it. How can you accuse me of speaking against the law when you disobey it? 
In other words, they're the ones who are blaspheming against the law, not him. It's not me, it's you. (laughs) You beginning to see why they got a bit shirty? Well, what about the tabernacle? He's accused of blasphemy against this place, the temple. Well, what did Israel know about the tabernacle temple? Well, Stephen says in verse 49, heaven, he quotes from uh, Isaiah, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? In other words, I don't need a temple to live in. I'm much bigger than that. I'm not bound by that. That's interesting, isn't it? um, Paul will make the same point in Athens. But uh, God doesn't dwell in these places. He owns the whole world. You know, the cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. And what did Israel do with their knowledge? Well, chapter 6, verse uh, 13, that they accuse him of speaking against this holy place. Well, in in Stephen's speech, he says, "You, you, you idolize it. So the charge against Stephen is that he speaks against the temple. Stephen's defense is you idolize it and you worship it. You make out that this place is more important than anything else. In other words, who's blaspheming against the temple? Well, it's you because you've reduced God to just this building and that that's all that matters to you. It's not me, it's you. You've turned it into something it was never meant to be. And of course, we had sort of hints of that in Jesus' ministry, didn't we? As he came to clean out the temple because of what it had become. Now, you're probably wondering, what on earth has all this got to do with Acts? And it's quite heavy going. I, I, I fully accept. It's not like anything else we've read in the book of Acts, and it's not like anything else we will read in Acts. It it's, stands on its own. And most of all, the most bizarre thing is that Jesus is not even mentioned by name in it. Well, look how Jesus finished. Verse 52, 53. What happened to the Old Testament prophets who exposed sin and people who broke the law? Verse 52. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now... You've betrayed and murdered him. In other words, yes, the righteous one is Jesus. What happened to the prophets who predicted him? They were killed. What happened to the righteous one when he came? He was killed. Jesus was right with God. He was righteous. But he was right with God because he lived right by the law. He perfectly kept the law. And that's significant for all who will follow that righteous one because they cannot keep the law in its entirety. The righteous one does it. No wonder Stephen did not think he was blaspheming against the law because he believed in the one who ultimately never blasphemed against the law, but do you remember? I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. And this one, this predicted one, this... Righteous one, Jesus, predicted by the prophets. There was an unfortunate track record in the history of Israel. They kept bumping off the people God sent them. Jesus talked about that in a parable in Luke's gospel, didn't he? The parable of the tenants. God keeps sending servants to the tenants and says, look, 
And then the most poignant verse of all in that parable, the, the, the owner says, well, I'll send my son. Maybe they'll listen to him. Now, this has probably seemed very hard going. It has been, I'm sorry. Well, uh, that's the way it is. But we can draw some of these things together. I, in our, there's a little group of us uh, that meets to read the New Testament in Greek every Wednesday morning, 8 o'clock. Please do join us uh, in my flat uh, during term time if you would like to. We have a laugh. Uh, we've taken, uh, how long? We've done a, a year to get to the beginning of John 7. Um, we do about 10 verses each week. It's fab. Um, but anyway, in John 7, we were looking just last week at John 7, verse 19. Just turn to that, would you? John 7, 19. It's a fascinating moment. Jesus is at the Feast of the Tabernacles. Where is he? He's in the temple courts. And the fascinating thing is, is that Jesus uses exactly the same argument that Stephen does. John 7, verse 19. Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? Do you see? God has given the law. You've disobeyed it, and now you're trying to kill Jesus, the righteous one. It's exactly the same argument Stephen, in exactly the same place, maybe a few weeks, months later, making the same argument probably to pretty much the same people. God gave you the law and you disobeyed it. How dare you accuse me of speaking against the law? You hypocrites! You whitewashed tombs! But hopefully as we come back to Acts, we can see two things. We can see why he was so provocative, can't you? You can see why this led to Stephen's martyrdom. You know, some people, I guess there might have been one or two people saying, well, he really asked for that. <laughs> he wasn't exactly conciliatory. But hopefully we can begin to see why in Luke's narrative of how God's gospel went global, we can see why it begins to set the scene for what's going to happen tomorrow. As the gospel goes beyond the boundaries of the nation of Israel. Because in Stephen's speech, he's been saying, look, all the way through, the foundational events for your national identity happened outside the land. God can work outside the land, you know. Because if you look at our history, you'll see that that's exactly what happened. Do you see? God is not bound by bricks and mortar or by United Nations boundary lines. The original recipients of God's law disobeyed it. Only his righteous one obeyed it. Having the law was a privilege, but it doesn't make you righteous. Because we failed to keep it. And the temple could never be more than a picture of something bigger because God does not live in buildings. Yes, it was important. Yes, it was wonderful. The first Christians loved to meet there. But it's pointing forward to something much bigger, and you can read the letter to the Hebrews, chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews particularly, to see that. God doesn't live in buildings. Stephen's speech, I think, and this is the reason, I think, why we get it in so much detail. It's longer than pretty much every other one in Acts. Stephen's speech helps us to see how it would become possible for Gentiles to come in. 
Well, what of the verdicts? What happened? Well, they drag him out to stone him. Verse 55, verse 54, they heard his, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Well, you can understand their fury, even if they're wrong. (laughs) But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, you see, what is the Spirit enabling him to do? To speak boldly in the face of rocks. And he looks up to heaven and he sees the glory of God and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he says look I see heaven open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God now basically this is Jesus verdict not so much on his martyrdom but on his speech basically Jesus is looking down from heaven and saying yes you have spoken well Jesus verdict is absolutely right, which is in total contrast to Israel's verdict. They get out the stones. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. As he lived, so he died lived like his Lord, died like his Lord. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, said the Lord as he died. But there's a chill in the air. Verse 58. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Verse 1. Saul was there, giving approval to his death. Perhaps this fellow member of the synagogue of the freedmen, perhaps he'd known Stephen for years, who knows? He's there watching, giving his approval. To his mind, to Saul the Pharisee's mind, justice had been done, or rather, righteousness had been done. Do you see? In the Old Covenant, the sanction for blasphemy was stoning. He stood there giving approval because he said, yes, we have kept the law. But there's the irony. Well, let's take a step back just for the last few minutes and just try and see what we make of all of this. The first point is that persecution is not new. And so we shouldn't be surprised. And I don't just mean Stephen's martyrdom. I don't even mean Jesus's. Stephen has said throughout the Old Testament, God's prophets have been killed. Despite the fact that they're speaking for God. It's rather a dangerous profession. And of course it goes on today around the world in our own country. There there are those who will stop at nothing to eradicate the church. In the last 50, 60 years, there have been a number of cases on our own continent. Adolf Hitler spoke of both Protestants and Catholics with contempt. He was convinced that all Christians 
would ultimately betray their God when they were forced to choose between the swastika and the cross. This is what he said. Do you really believe the masses will be Christian again? Nonsense. Never again. That tale is finished. No one will listen to it again. But we can hasten matters. The parsons will dig their own graves. They will betray their God to us. They will betray anything for the sake of their miserable jobs and incomes. They will betray their God to us. And many did. But there are many who didn't. They called themselves the Confessing Church. And they suffered. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer came out of the Second World War as heroes, even though he didn't come out alive. These men and women were the heroes, not Hitler's supermen, Ubermensch. This is what Bonhoeffer wrote while he was in the Nazi concentration camp where he would be executed. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. Jesus does not promise that when we bless our enemies and do good to them, they will not, they will not, um, that they will not fully use and persecute us. They certainly will. But not even that can hurt or overcome us so long as we pray for them. We are doing for our enemies vicariously what they cannot do for themselves. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How do we deal with this? Well, the important thing is to realize, you see, persecution is not beyond God's control. Uh, this is a prayer that Bonhoeffer prayed regularly. This is a photograph of him in Tegel Prison, which is where he spent uh, some time before ending up in Flossenburg. He was executed just weeks before the end of the war. Oh God, early in the morning I cry to you. Help me to pray and to concentrate my thoughts on you. I cannot do this alone. In me there is darkness, but with you there's light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you there is help. I am restless, but with you there is peace. In me there is bitterness, but with you there is patience. I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. Restore me to liberty and enable me so to live now that I may answer before you and before me. Lord, Whatever this day may bring, your name be praised. I don't make any claims that this is easy. I'm certainly not being glib. But we are reminded that God is good and trustworthy. Persecution is not beyond God's control. And even, and we have to say this with trembling knees, it even leads to gospel growth. Look what happens. 
in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 8. On that great day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Does that ring bells? Theology with geography. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Doesn't make it easy. There is still grief, but not grief as the pagans grieve. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Stephen's death leads to Christians leaving Jerusalem. Perhaps they wouldn't have left otherwise. The ripple effect has begun, how God's gospel went global. And the painful reality is that actually for that process to happen at various stages, it even needed persecution. Do you remember Paul writing to the Philippians? And he says, look, I want you to realize that what has happened to me has turned out to be something great for the gospel because even members of Caesar's palace guard have now heard the gospel. How on earth do you reach tough Praetorian guards in Rome? Well, one obvious way is to be chained to them. (laughs) But I'm jumping ahead. But there's something extraordinary about this, that actually you see persecution is not the unforgivable sin if you're the persecutor. Stephen prayed as he died, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And there was one man watching him, giving approval who would be the very man God would use to reach the Gentile world. That even what Saul did then was forgivable. That people with the most extraordinary past can still have the most amazing future. Saul has had an extraordinary part to play in the story so far. It's pretty grisly, probably a member of the synagogue of the freedmen. He came from Cilicia. This was where the Cilician Jews used to meet in Jerusalem. The clothes are laid at Saul's feet. He gives approval, and he's destroying the church from house to house. That implies relentless determination. I'm going to root these people out. I'm going to smoke them out. This is KGB Gestapo tactics. But God's on his case, as we'll see tomorrow. But as I finish, there's an important lesson. And that is that Israel's boundaries are not God's boundaries. Stephen's speech has begun to prove that. God has a plan for non-Israelites. But I feel rather overwhelmed by all of this. And so I thought, as I finish, I play you a song. Um, I came across this just a a few weeks ago. It's a a group in the States who are called Seeds Family Worship. They produce basically scripture songs. They just take words from scripture and put them to funky music. And one or two have been given incredible videos. And so I just thought I'd play you this as I finish. So hopefully Tell's ready for the music to come out of my computer. And basically it speaks for itself. Psalm 55, 22. Cast your cares on the Lord And He will sustain you He will sustain you Cast your cares 
on the Lord And He will sustain you He will sustain you And He will never, never, never let the righteous fall Let the righteous fall No He will never, never, never let the righteous fall Let the righteous fall